Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we are going to look at Chrono Trigger, a role-playing game, or more specifically, a JRPG, or a Japanese role-playing game, released in 1995, developed and published by Square for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. We're going to be talking about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is customary, we have a little bit of housekeeping to go over up front. This is episode number 14 of our podcast. I remain excited every single week to be talking with all of you. If you would like to talk with me, there are a couple of ways you can reach out to me. I have an email address with the address classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account, which has the handle at classicgamingt. So if you'd like to reach out, give me suggestions about other games to cover, would like to talk about any of the games we've already covered, just give feedback, comments, advice, whatever it is, feel free to reach out. I am more than happy to have a discussion. And in fact, I would love to have a discussion with all of you. We have gotten a little bit of feedback here and there. I definitely want to continue to gather that feedback and just have the discussion because I love talking about classic games. For anybody who's new, welcome. I do just want to go real quickly over the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, every single episode follows a very similar format and uh, structure. So, every single episode, we will start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. Where does it sit in the overall history of gaming? Uh, Following that, we then go into a pseudo review, and I say pseudo because it's not like we assign a score value, but we do talk about every single game from a few different perspectives, those being graphics, how does the game look, sound and music, how does the game sound, the narrative and or story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and the overall feel of playing the game today versus playing the game when it was originally released, whenever that was. And we do that in order to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. To do that, we assign one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game makes it into the Pantheon, you know it's a classic. You should still play it today. And in fact, I highly recommend you to play it today because it is an important game and it's also a darn good game and remains a good game even today. Just below the Pantheon is our Golden Oldies. These are games that are really, really good games. I highly recommend you to play them. They don't quite reach Pantheon level for whatever reason. Might have aged just a little bit, but overall, still amazing experiences. Still highly recommend that you play them. Just beyond the Golden Oldies are our mediocre mentions. These are the games that we start talking about where I can't really recommend that you play them. You may have a good time, especially if you have any sort of fondness or nostalgia for the game itself or the genre. But generally speaking, these are games that are not quite as good. They may not have aged very well or as well as some of the other games, or they might have had some issues up front to begin with when they were originally created. Beyond the mediocre mentions, this is where we get to the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. We do not and cannot recommend 
any title that falls into the footnote. You could try to play one. You could go ahead and do that. I can't control you, nor would I want to. But I cannot in good conscience recommend these games. They've either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with. Anyway, with that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day, that being Chrono Trigger. Trigger was a Japanese role-playing game, or JRPG, released in 1995, developed and published by Square for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Before we begin talking about Chrono Trigger, I think it's important that we talk about the concept of JRPGs in general, both from a historical perspective as well as what we commonly mean when we refer to something as a JRPG. So first, what is a JRPG? Well, the J in this context stands for Japanese, and the RPG is, of course, role-playing game. And it's named that way because the style that we're going to be talking about became prevalent and popular in Japan, and the JRPGs are often created by Japan-based developers. Now, all JRPGs, or I'll say most JRPGs, have some common traits. And we're going to talk about each of these up front just so that we're all on the same level playing field. Generally speaking, most JRPGs are turn-based. What that means is that you have a party of characters and you're fighting enemies in battle. Generally, what happens is your enemies will take a turn and you'll take a turn. You might be able to cast spells or attack or use items, but generally speaking, it goes back and forth between your enemy and you. There are some games to play around with that a little bit and play around with some of the sequencing. There are some games just like Chrono Trigger that have more of an active time battle kind of system where it's not necessarily a enemy takes a turn and then waits for you to input and then you take a turn and kind of waits back and forth. There are some games that actually have a much more interactive or much more uh, time-driven system, meaning that enemies can take turns as long as their turn counter is up. They don't necessarily have to wait for you to act. Um, So there are a couple of different styles of turn-based JRPGs, but for the most part, all JRPGs are turn-based in some capacity. Generally speaking, most JRPGs, you control a party of characters. Oftentimes, there is a main character that the story kind of revolves around, and then there are companions that are gained and lost along the way. Sometimes, different JRPGs have different classes built into the game, and some of them are explicit, where you're like, you have a mage, you have a fighter, you have a rogue, things like that. Other times, different characters simply have different potential skill sets without actual named classes. So you may not necessarily have a cleric, but when you pick up a character, you see that all they have is healing spells and support spells. So they're kind of a cleric, even though they're not named a cleric. But you do have, generally speaking, a party of characters. And a lot of these JRPGs have a group of companions that you can recruit along your adventure that may or may not be joining you 
in any specific quest or adventure, meaning a lot of JRPGs have a certain party size limit that you can have with you at any given point in time, but you may have a stable of characters waiting for you that you can kind of switch in and out as you need to based on the fights that you're doing or the skill sets or you're doing special subquests specific to certain characters, they usually have the ability for you to do that. They also almost always have some sort of experience-based system, where as you fight, as you explore throughout the game, you gain experience points, which then allows you to gain levels and learn new skills or spells. Some JRPGs have a lot of grinding in them, and you can grind to gain additional experience points and additional levels to help make future fights a little bit easier. Some JRPGs are a little bit more streamlined and don't necessarily require grinding. There are some that absolutely require grinding because you'll hit a wall and and you just can't progress until you get some additional levels. So there are some games that have that kind of built in. There are others that make it a little bit more streamlined. Almost all of them have some sort of item or inventory system that includes uh, equipment, which are different items that you can, of course, wear like chest plates or weapons or uh, rings, all sorts of different items that you can potentially equip on your characters and generally you get loot throughout the game. Some JRPGs actually have an upgrade system in place for equipment. Others do not. Um, so, but generally speaking, there are equipment systems and item driven inventory systems in most JRPGs. A lot of the games also involve exploring an overworld where you can then dive into specific areas or, or navigate to specific areas. And a lot of those games with overworlds have some sort of travel aid that they give you in order to progress or to travel more easily. This might be things like an airship or chocobo or horses or whatever. They usually have some sort of vehicular system that you can explore the overworld with to get to the individual locations that you would then explore in more depth. Oftentimes when you navigate to a specific location, if it's not a city kind of place, you'll often have to fight through a bunch of enemies before finding and dispatching whoever the boss is of a given area. And sometimes those battles are entirely random, meaning you could keep walking around the screen and keep encountering new bad guys or new groups of monsters to face. Other games have the enemies actually on the screen and you could potentially avoid them if you wanted to. So there are a couple of different varieties there as well. Generally speaking, there is always a main quest. Oftentimes, most JRPGs have a ton of side quests and optional content. And there is usually a big focus on narrative and story in JRPGs. Most of them have a significant amount of detail, a significant amount of time spent on the narrative itself. And a lot of these games are really long. Uh, they can last tens of hours, if not longer. Some JRPGs uh, exceed 100 hours. And some of them have 100 hours worth of content just as part of primarily the main quest, which is kind of crazy, but a lot of detail goes into these games. So generally speaking, most JRPGs have pretty much all of these common traits. Each game does put their own little spin on them, but for the most part, those traits are relatively common across the JRPG landscape. Now, of course, JRPGs didn't just spring into existence with all these elements in place. As with all games and genres, there was evolution that occurred over time. 
Now, while early forms of what we would later call JRPGs existed in the early 1980s, the games being created at that time were still very experimental, which kind of makes sense given the fact that the games industry in general was very experimental at the time. The early 80s, games were still kind of in their early infancy stages. You had some some really nice arcade games and some interesting kind of home games of certain versions like Pong and things like that, but you didn't really have as much of a gaming industry as what you would get as the 80s progressed and certainly into the 90s and beyond. Now, interestingly, the RPG, and forget about JRPGs for now, but the overall RPG market at the time was pretty much dominated by Western-developed computer-based games. Typically, because of the complexity of RPGs, computers were better suited for the genre than home consoles. Think about games like Wizardry and Ultima. It's tricky to convert those complex systems and the systems that were usually built into these RPGs, tricky to convert them into a home console kind of setup, at least at the time. In 1985, however, all of that would change. A man by the name of Yuji Hori, inspired by those Western computer RPGs, wanted to create his own take on the genre, albeit tailored for the Japanese console market. He, along with a small team at Japanese development studio Chunsoft and famed Dragon Ball creator Akira Toriyama, began collaborating with the end result being the birth of the Dragon Quest series, which was known as Dragon Warrior in North America. The first game in the series was developed by Chunsoft and published by Enix, a notable Japanese game publisher. That title would spawn numerous sequels and spin-offs, and its design was almost single-handedly responsible for setting the framework for all Japanese-based console RPGs that would follow. While Yuji Hori, Turiyama, and others were working on the Dragon Quest series, another company, Square, was getting ready to enter the market. Square, the company, was founded in 1983, originally as a software-focused spin-off of a Japanese power company. Masafumi Miyamoto, the son of the owner of the parent power company, was given the reins to run Square, and based on his interests in computers and technology, he decided to focus the company's efforts on the burgeoning video game market. Miyamoto had grand plans for the company, and he also noticed an opportunity in the industry— At the time, most games in Japan were developed by a single person, very similar to what we've seen when talking about early computer game development efforts in other parts of the world. Miyamoto had a different vision, though. He thought that game quality could be improved if they were developed by teams of people rather than single developers, bringing on artists, designers, musicians, programmers, all those kind of creative types could allow for higher quality contributions across the board, allowing each individual's expertise to improve the overall experience. Now, with that concept in mind, he began hiring individuals with various skill sets into the company. One of those individuals was game designer Hironobu Sakaguchi, and another was Japanese composer Noboru Uematsu. Square's first games were developed in 1985, the same time that Dragon Quest was gaining praise for its style of gameplay. Unlike Dragon Quest, however, Square wasn't creating hit titles at the time. Square had secured a deal with Nintendo to create titles for their Famicom system, hoping that the console's stability in comparison to other computer platforms would lead to greater likelihood of success. Unfortunately, it didn't. Square was not doing well financially, and in 1986, Square executive Miyamoto brought together his leadership team to brainstorm how to right the ship. Various ideas were presented. 
one of which was a concept by Hironobu Sakaguchi to develop an RPG. Miyamoto, however, wasn't bought in, but he said, Sakaguchi, you could try it as long as the team was kept to only five individuals. So Sakaguchi, along with Noburu Uematsu, and several others went off to develop what would become the very first Final Fantasy, which would release on the Famicom in 1987. Original sales expectations for the game were around 200,000 units, and the total sales would eventually exceed 400,000 titles in Japan. It would almost single-handedly save Square from its financial issues. And while there were other JRPGs around that time, Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest were the two big ones, and over the years, numerous iterations and sequels of each would be released and compete with each other. Square and Enix, being the two leading publishers for JRPGs, would be in a constant struggle over who was creating the higher quality titles. Now, I do want to just mention real quick, as some of you might realize, Square and Enix would eventually merge in 2003, becoming the company we now know today as Square Square Enix. But back in the 80s, they were two competing companies that created two very different kinds of titles. So with JRPGs now a defined genre in the gaming industry between Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy, we can now fast forward a little bit to 1992, when a literal dream team of creative individuals met in the United States to learn more about computer graphics. That team was Final Fantasy creator Hironobu Sakaguchi, Dragon Quest creator Yuji Hori, and Dragon Ball creator and Dragon Quest character designer Akira Toriyama. The three men met and began to think about how they could collaborate together to create something nobody had ever seen before. They wanted to take their collective expertise, which by this point were several games for each of them in both the Dragon Quest and the Final Fantasy series, so they wanted to take their expertise and combine it and work on something that would be a unique masterclass level kind of RPG experience. Those initial discussions would evolve into what would become the idea for Chrono Trigger. So after a year of discussions and trying to figure out how to actually create a new game with the magnitude of what they wanted to accomplish, they were contacted by Kazuhiku Aoki, another game designer at Square, who offered to produce the new title. The four men met together and brainstormed ideas for the new game, after which an overarching direction and general concept were defined. So with that initial concept nailed down, the team could begin working on the game in earnest, pulling in over 50 developers from across Square to assist with the effort. With half of that team having worked on the landmark title Final Fantasy VI, which, by the way, is my probably my favorite JRPG of all time. Final Fantasy VI is amazing. I hope we get a chance to talk about that eventually on this podcast. So half of the development team for Chrono Trigger had worked on Final Fantasy VI, and the other half was new to the team. So there was a pretty good mix of veterans and newbies alike, providing a good degree of diversity across the entire development team. Now, various members of the team contributed to the title, as you might expect with a game whose primary goal was to create something never done before. Developing the plot took the better part of a year, with hours spent every single day trying to craft a story that would be epic, yet nuanced. They didn't just want to go for a gigantic, epic kind of experience. They wanted to make this a personal kind of journey. 
Interestingly, the concept of time travel being included in the game, which is actually one of the major plot points in Chrono Trigger, was not initially well received. It was thought that such a mechanic would not only introduce the potential for story inconsistencies, but would also drive repetitive, dull gameplay. The thought was, who would want to explore the same environment across different timelines? So the team had to work incredibly hard to make the concept of time travel feel fresh and not be a pitfall that could lessen the quality of the game. A lot of the work spent on the plot over that first year would be focused on figuring out how to make a compelling narrative that used time travel effectively as opposed to just as a gimmick. And anybody who has spent any time, pun intended I guess, talking about time travel recognizes that there are a number of paradoxes that could potentially be put into place if you play around with time travel and change events in the past and then the future is completely different than what it may have been and there's just a whole lot of theory around time travel itself but the development team was trying to figure out how to make this be a compelling part of the story and an interesting part of the narrative and not just be one of those things they would use just for the heck of it. Yuji Hori, unlike some of the others on the team, actually liked the concept of time travel and the potential paradoxes that it could present, so he worked diligently to include various elements of how changes in one time would impact the next when he was working on his story contributions. Toriyama worked on character designs as he had done with Dragon Quest, with a team of artists emulating his style to ensure consistency across the entire game. Toriyama's designs were often fantastical and imaginative, which led the team to think about how they could utilize the designs in the game. Many of the team, like we talked about, had been involved in creating Final Fantasy VI, so they had preconceived notions as to what could and couldn't be used in a game. Toriyama's creativity went beyond that and allowed the team to think broader and to try things that wouldn't be at home in the Final Fantasy universe. As the game's design evolved, the game itself would become increasingly complex. The time travel mechanic and the general sense of creating something brand new introduced all sorts of interesting opportunities for the team to explore, such as including multiple endings, which I don't remember any other game, or I'm sure there were other RPGs that had multiple endings at the time, but this one had 12, at least in the original release, which there was an additional ending added when they did the uh, remake or the remaster for the Nintendo DS and Sony PlayStation. So I don't remember other games really touting that many different endings, depending on what your actions were. But, but Chrono Trigger was including that right out of the gate. They also had a very risky character death, and I'm not going to spoil who that was, but something that also was not commonplace in RPGs at the time. And they also evolved the general battle system utilized in the game beyond what you would see in traditional JRPGs and turn-based kind of combat. One of the biggest shifts there, beyond the active time battle system that they implemented, was using the main game area map for the battles as opposed to a separate screen, which had been commonplaced in JRPGs up to that point. So interesting story here. The game was originally being developed for the Super Famicom Disk System, which was the CD-ROM-based add-on that Nintendo was originally partnering with Sony for, and then uh, ultimately Philips, and then ultimately nobody. That whole endeavor ended up being a complete failure, and is fascinating in its own right. But for the purposes of this discussion, the main takeaway is that the failure of the CD-ROM add-on forced the team to reconstruct the game for traditional cartridges, which actually served to improve the speed and load times of the experience. So that was actually a blessing in disguise. 
And just real quick to talk about what I mean when we say that the battles happened on the map versus a different screen. In typical JRPGs of the time, if you would encounter an enemy on the screen or you would hit a random battle, the screen would morph and you would kind of go into a side view form or side view of the battlefield and then you would have the enemies and your party on the field and you'd be able to battle. In Chrono Trigger, there was no loading. There was no different screen. You were walking around the the main map for whatever dungeon or environment you were in, and the fights just happened on that map, which was totally different than what a lot of JRPGs had done up to that point. The one other notable addition that the team made to the game was the inclusion of a new Game Plus mode, where your characters and most of your equipment and items would transfer forwards to a new game, allowing you to experience the game all over again, albeit with a much more powerful party. Now, this became one of the main ways that individuals would seek to see more of the game's various endings and was something that not many RPGs of the time offered. And this is another one where I'm trying to think from a JRPG perspective if there were any other games that combined not only multiple endings, but also a new game plus mode around this time. If anybody knows of any, let me know. I cannot think of any off the top of my head. With the graphics, overall design, character models, and the overarching plot and story being well underway, we're now going to turn our attention to music. And I just want to relay a personal story. I love music in JRPGs. I have been a fan of Nobuo Uematsu forever. I mean, I told you guys, uh, Final Fantasy VI, which was Final Fantasy III here in the United States, is one of my favorite JRPGs, if not my favorite JRPG of all time. I would listen to just the music outside of the game, and I've done this with tons of JRPGs over the course of my life. I absolutely love the music in JRPGs. I think they're just phenomenal. I think that they do a great job composing the music and integrating it into the game world. So I'll stop being a fanboy for a second, and we'll talk more about Chrono Trigger and the creation of the soundtrack there which for Chrono Trigger, the music would be composed by a man named Yasunori Mitsada, who was a sound programmer who had become disenfranchised with Square, and he even threatened to leave the company if he wasn't given the opportunity to compose music for a game. Hironobu Sakaguchi suggested that perhaps Mitsada could compose the music for Chrono Trigger, and using various musical pieces he had been working on independently as a bass, he began creating the tracks for the game. Creating music for Chrono Trigger, though, proved to be both a labor of love as well as a literal painful experience, as Mitsada spent days and nights working in his studio to create as close to a perfect soundtrack as possible. The sheer volume of his work was unparalleled, with the final soundtrack for Chrono Trigger encompassing three CDs worth of music. And that's even after he lost 40 in-progress tracks due to a hard drive crash, which I can only imagine would have been heartbreaking. I know how I feel or how I used to feel if I would save a file, say a, a Word document or a word processor document onto a floppy disk and it would no longer load because the disk got damaged or demagnetized or something like that. I can't imagine what it would be like working on a game a high-profile dream team kind of game, finally having the experience to compose the soundtrack for it, and then losing 40 tracks to a hard drive crash. 
I think I would be so depressed. I can only imagine how Mitsada felt when that happened. Luckily, Mitsada persevered, but he did eventually develop stomach ulcers, and I'm sure that hard drive crash didn't help in that capacity at all because I'm sure it was a very nerve-wracking kind of experience. So, legendary composer, or at least legendary at the time, composer Noburo Uematsu came in to finish the game, and he ended up contributing 10 tracks to the overall experience. Finally, after years of dedication and work, Chrono Trigger would finally release in 1995 and was met with universal critical and player acclaim. Many would praise the fact that the story and game mechanics, while generally speaking simpler and more straightforward than many of the other JRPGs of the time, were of a caliber rarely seen. It received numerous Game of the Year awards and is widely recognized by many people as one of the best games of all time. After its release on the Super Famicom and the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, the game would be ported to and remastered on multiple systems, such as the Sony PlayStation, the Nintendo DS, and mobile phone platforms. These ports would include a number of additions to the base game, including an additional ending bringing the total to 13, new quest content, and fully animated cutscenes during pivotal moments of the game. Chrono Trigger would become not just a critical success, but would also prove to be hugely successful commercially. Across all of its various releases, it would sell nearly 4 million copies, grossing over $350 million in sales. Today, Chrono Trigger is one of the more collectible games for the Super Nintendo, with in-box copies routinely fetching close to $1,000 on eBay. And I know we could probably talk about the collector market and whether that's a fair value or not. All I know is it is an incredibly collectible game, and it drives or it demands a very high price based on the the uh, need versus demand out there, or the supply versus demand, I should say out there it has it's a very highly sought after collector's item especially in box chrono trigger would also spawn eventually a playstation exclusive sequel entitled chrono cross released in 1999 though it would feature all new characters settings and story beats although it would similarly receive critical acclaim chrono cross itself would sell 1.5 million copies for the playstation and there have been some rumblings over the years of creating another entry in the series, but other than a lapsed trademark for the name Chrono Break back in 2003, there hasn't been anything concrete that I've been able to find that's been discussed. We can all hope that one day we'll be able to experience a return to the Chrono Trigger world. Regardless of what the future may hold, Chrono Trigger stands by itself as a landmark title in gaming. A dream team of designers, developers, artists, and musicians came together to create a once-in-a-lifetime experience, a game that would become fondly remembered by nearly everyone who played it. It's a game that delivers a quintessential JRPG experience, and like the story of the game itself, its legacy, quality, and impact transcends time.
We are now going to shift to start talking about more of the specific feel of playing the game Chrono Trigger uh, today versus when it was originally released, which once again was back in 1995 for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. So let's talk specifically about how Chrono Trigger embodied the JRPG elements that we talked about a little bit before and what it did or how it implemented those various aspects of the JRPG genre. So first, in Chrono Trigger, you are able to gather a party of characters. At any given point in time, you can control three different characters, and it's not like you have this entire party from the beginning of the game. You are able to recruit characters as you go throughout the game, and at the end of the day, there are seven possible party members that you can recruit onto your team. Uh, One is definitely missable, depending on what your actions are throughout the game. But there are seven total party members, which is a little bit lower than Final Fantasy VI. Final Fantasy VI was a sprawling epic that had like 20 or, or maybe even more than 20 characters that you could recruit over the course of the game. Chrono Trigger, a little bit more of a personal experience. Um, they all had their own individual side quests, by the way, which was really interesting. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we start talking more about the story. But basically, the way it worked is, depending on who you were controlling, you were able to fight through the various environments and dungeons and things like that with your characters. You'd gain experience. You would get equipment upgrades along the way. Uh, so basically, very, very kind of standard JRPG fare as it relates to the party of characters. Uh, now, there was, and we mentioned this before, an active time battle system, which is a little bit different than what a lot of JRPGs were doing. Like we had said, most JRPGs had a turn-based system where a monster would take a turn and then you would be able to take a turn and it would kind of bounce back and forth. Chrono Trigger implemented what they called an active time battle system. And what that meant was that each individual character or monster on the screen would have their own timer that would be basically counting up until they were able to make a turn. And when that turn came up, they were able to take some sort of action, whether that was casting a spell, using an item, attacking, whatever the case might be. What that also meant was that you can't leave the game running because your monsters or the monsters you're fighting are going to continue the battle whether you're there or not. Uh, And that basically means also that you have to be relatively quick in selecting what you want to do and how you want to progress with your individual fights or what you want to do in those fights and when you need to heal or when you want to attack or when you want to be more defensive because you basically have to strategize in real time to make sure that you're ready to do whatever action it is that you want to do in advance of when the monster's uh, timer would make it so that they would actually supersede your move. So it was a very active kind of turn-based system. It was not a passive kind of thing at all. You really had to pay attention and really had to be ready to act very quickly so that you would have the most effective battles possible. Now, we did talk about the JRPGs most of the time had some form of spell system, Chrono Trigger is no different, except in Chrono Trigger, it was called the Technique System. It was basically spells, uh, and you would learn these over time. As you would fight through various battles, you would earn Technique points, and that would then enable each of your characters to learn new spells or new techniques in this context. What was different, though, about Chrono Trigger is that they actually implemented a system where 
multiple characters can learn techniques that are shared or that are kind of combo techniques across your party. So you might have a technique that, say, Chrono and Frog are able to execute together, and that's very specific to just them. You might have techniques that require three different characters to be in your party to be able to execute. And all of the techniques were specific to the various combinations of characters. What that basically meant was that you would have a very unique experience depending on what your party of characters was going to be. And some characters synergize much better than others. And in order to continue to learn those techniques, you had to make sure that you had the right characters in the party at the right time in order to be able to learn both your individual solo techniques as well as the joint or combo techniques that would be utilized by the various characters. It was a pretty deep system, and it really encouraged you to try different parties out and different combinations of characters out because ultimately... That would be how you would develop your quote-unquote spells, and the more that you had, the more effective you would eventually become, and the better you were going to be able to fight or deal with the various battles that you would be uh, dealing with. There are also certain techniques that were findable in the game, in, in the game world, in chests, and it was very interesting to see how that worked. It was a little bit different than what we might have seen in some of the Final Fantasy games, like with the Materia kind of systems or with Espers and things like that, where you would actually have to use a given item in order to learn it. This was a little bit dis or decoupled, I'll say, from specific items other than the techniques that you can find in the game world itself. Most of the time, you were just able to learn these techniques as long as you had the right combination of characters in your party at the time that you were fighting through the game. Chrono Trigger also had an overworld map where you would navigate to different places, you would kill bosses and creatures, very traditional kind of overworld setting. Uh, they did have an airship-like uh, vehicle or movement included in the game. I stuttered there a little bit because it's not like what you might have seen in Final Fantasy where you kind of get one thing, you get your airship, and that's pretty much it. In Chrono Trigger, you actually have to work to get the uh, the airship-like device, and it actually upgrades over time based on where you are in the game. So the first time you actually have the ability to navigate the overworld is actually in the uh, prehistory era, or I guess ancient history era, where you can ride on the back of some pterodactyls, and eventually you get a... a a time machine and eventually get a full-fledged time machine airship that can pretty much navigate anywhere and in any time frame which was very interesting how they built the ship and basically had the ship be upgraded as you continued throughout your journey as i alluded to just a minute ago there are multiple time frames throughout the game so like we talked about chrono trigger is not just a straightforward quest in a single timeline kind of thing there are multiple timelines that you can visit throughout the game and specifically there are seven distinct timelines there's 65 million bc 12,000 bc 600 ad 1000 ad which for the purposes of this game is considered the present 1999 ad which is effectively doomsday 2300 ad and then the end of time which is not a fully fleshed out timeline in the same way that the other timelines are and that you don't really have an overworld map kind of thing to navigate the end of time is basically just a room or a couple of rooms that you can navigate and and talk with a particular NPC and get some hints. And that's where the rest of your party kind of hangs out as you're navigating the game world with whatever your chosen set of party members is. The one 
very interesting thing. And I could see the amount of detail that the team put into the whole time travel mechanic. Events in one time frame or one timeline can definitely impact future timelines. And there are specific quests that are designed so that you would do something in the past that would then result in something changing in the future. Sometimes these are very big kind of sweeping changes that changes the entire landscape of a given area. There are others where it's just kind of very subtle and it might just be a shopkeep that has that exists in one era that didn't exist or wouldn't have existed if you didn't do something in the past. And it might be just very subtle kinds of things, but it really worked. And when you encounter those individual pieces of time travel that you did something in one timeline and then later on you see its effect, it was just really well done. And it did not slip into gimmick territory at all. It was just a really well done system and really well integrated into the game itself. And that's also a testament to the detail of the story. We will talk specifically about the story in a couple minutes, but to put it lightly, Chrono Trigger had a super detailed story and all of the characters were really well fleshed out. It was just a a remarkable experience to witness and to play again. I hadn't played it since it was originally released and I just played it very recently for this podcast and um, I definitely have some thoughts. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But before we do that, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says because, well, in this case, pretty much people were knowing about Chrono Trigger. This is kind of the time frame where games media and you kind of had the ability to get some information about some of these games. It's not like this was a early eighties kind of title where information was scarce, but I still like looking at the back of the box because I still find it fascinating how individual developers or publishers or marketing teams would sell their product for somebody who may not be as familiar with the game through other means. So, for Chrono Trigger, the back of the box says, The 32 Meg Quest begins. The Millennium. A portal is opened. The chain of time is broken. A young man is transported into the past, altering the course of history and the outcome of the future. He has to find his way home, but first he must travel to the outer edges of time to repair the world's chronology. On the way, he encounters strange friends and foes, utilizes incredible devices and vehicles, and penetrates and neutralizes the fortresses of the past, present, and future. A paradox has been created. If he does not restore the order of time, nothing will ever be the same. He is the one who will become a hero. He is Chrono. And, of course, there are some Various images from the game included on the back of the box. 32 Meg Quest refers to the fact that this was a 32 megabit cartridge, which was pretty darn large for the Super Nintendo. So definitely a dramatic kind of foretelling of the story or the overarching plot on the back of the box. So we're going to now move on to the more specific aspects of our pseudo review, those being the graphics, sound and music, narrative and story, playability, and the overall feel. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. And I have one word as it pertains to the graphics. Amazing. 
Chrono Trigger is an example of the pinnacle of 16-bit style RPGs. What that basically means is that it's sprite-driven. These are not highly detailed, three-dimensional kinds of characters or things like that. It is all sprite-based, and it is beautiful. The artwork in Chrono Trigger, from the character design to the environment effects to the spell effects, the little animations, like when you're casting a spell, when you're casting a healing spell with Marley... You're, you can see her hair flapping in the wind as she's casting the spell. It's those little teeny tiny animations that are built into every aspect of the game that just make it feel alive. And the graphics, the quality, the overall presentation of the game was just amazing. I really have, have no complaints with the graphics at all. This is an example of a 16-bit RPG done really well. I mean, there have been plenty of games that have come out that you look at and you're kind of like, eh, yeah, I mean, it looks okay. It's not the greatest thing. It's not the worst thing. No, Chrono Trigger is is the best thing. The graphics outshine nearly any other 16-bit RPG. I would be hard-pressed to find another 16-bit RPG that looks as good as Chrono Trigger. And because it's all sprite-stylized kinds of graphics, it holds up even today. You can look at it, and if you didn't know Chrono Trigger was a game released back 30, almost 30 years ago, you would not know that this wasn't just a retro-styled title coming out today. It looks that good. Moving on to the sound and music, this one, so for graphics, I had one word to say, which was amazing. For sound and music, I don't even have any words. Nearly every song in the game is 100% memorable. It is, from my perspective, one of the best soundtracks ever created. The music itself has a legacy just by itself. Multiple soundtrack releases, orchestral arrangements, jazz interpretations. There have been so many different versions of the music. And the reason for that is because the music is universally wonderful. It is as good as everyone says it is. And it's something that I've listened to while not playing the game. I know that I said before, I am a fan of JRPGs in general. And in particular, I'm a fan of JRPG music. I just love it. I think that the JRPG composers, for the most part, do an amazing job. It just evokes a certain sense of emotion and it brings you right back to the game worlds. Whenever you hear these tracks, it's it's just like an instant injection of nostalgia chrono trigger the music for chrono trigger transcends that the music is iconic the music is amazing every single piece of music fits so well with the individual scene if if you're trying to make a sad scene you will have a heartbreaking song play in the game if you're doing something exciting, the appropriate song already starts playing just automatically. The various character themes, each character has their own theme that you can hear when there's something pertinent or specific to those characters happening on the screen. It is just so well thought out. It is so well composed. I, I didn't know which tracks were composed by Mitsada versus Uematsu because everybody that worked on the game created a singular vision for the music it felt cohesive the whole soundtrack every single piece of music felt cohesive talking about the sound effects 
sound effects were amazing. They, they just sounded perfect. Every single spell that you would cast had the right kind of sound based on what you were seeing on the screen. Every creature, every enemy had their own specific sound effects as you would slash at them or as they would growl or they would have their own spells that they would cast on you or their own attacks. It just felt it felt so good. It sounded so good. The entire soundscape of the game was superb. I It's hard to explain something so good, but it was. And I know I, I just keep gushing about it, but it's just because there is no complaint. I have no complaint about the sound, the music, the sound effects in the game. It is as good as everybody says it is. Moving on to the narrative and story. This is a time-traveling, sprawling epic. It starts small, which I think is awesome. Basically, it starts with a lost princess who magically time-jumps and meets an ancestor. And then from that small beginning, that introduces the time-travel mechanic in a very, very high-level way. It evolves into a game about preventing a world-ending catastrophe, which, of course, most JRPGs and games in general, where you have the hero, eventually all games evolve into some sort of major event or some sort of uh, you are the savior of the world kind of experience. So that's not necessarily a distinct kind of story beat, but the overall story and the way it all comes together in Chrono Trigger is just amazing. And one of the things I really enjoyed about the game were all of the multiple side stories and subplots. So within each of the different timelines, there's a couple different perspectives here. In each of the different timelines, there are different overarching narrative structures. So if you're in the future, you may be in a world that's basically a post-apocalyptic kind of setting. This is not the kind of world where you're walking around and you see green grass and everybody's happy. Basically, by this point, the world has effectively ended and you have scavengers and survivors just kind of living and trying to live in this dilapidated post-apocalyptic environment. You can travel back in time to, say, 600 AD, where everything is very medieval architecture and everybody speaks with vowels and and kind of old English kind of words. Maybe not everybody, but it is uh, in the game at different points with that. But it's very evocative is what I'm trying to say. And that environment and the narrative or the overarching narrative for each of the timelines is different. And there are overarching goals for each of those timelines based on what's happening in that world. We could probably spend hours talking about the story alone and individual timeline plot points and things like that. I also want to mention, and I mentioned this a little bit before, that every single character that you can recruit has their own individual side quest. And the way the game works is you will progress through the game up to a point and then the game basically splits off and you can either go right for the ending and go right to try to try to defeat the big bad guy of the game, or you can progress a number of different side quests for each of the characters in your party so that they can either become more powerful or you can get additional powerful weapons that will then aid you in completing the game moving forward. Completely optional, not necessary. But each of those subplots, each of those side quests adds such a degree of additional context for each of the characters' motivations and each of the characters' kind of 
just overall viewpoints and fleshes out their backstory so much that I can't imagine why anybody would not want to do those subquests or would not want to dive deeper into each of the individual characters' side stories. I know for me, and this is something I do in general, most of the time when I play games, I try to basically devour everything that a game offers. I'm not one of those people that just does the main quest and walks away. I'm one of those people that likes to do every single piece of content, if at all possible. Sometimes I do that out of a sense of compulsion because I'm just, I'm a completionist, I guess, at heart. For Chrono Trigger, I did it because I wanted to. I wanted to learn more about the game. I wanted to learn more about the world, about the characters, everything in the game as it relates to story is excellent. You really want to see what happens next. And the dialogue, by the way, is very well done. Each character and the way that they speak has a distinct personality. You really want to learn more about each of your party members, their motivations, their backgrounds. You always want more because it is that darn good. And I really loved how they built certain quests around the use of time travel to change things in the past to affect the future. And I'll give one example here that's not too much of a spoiler, but it is something that I just as a prime example of what I'm talking about. At one point in the game, you come across a an area that is basically like a desert and there are monsters in the desert that are preventing anything from growing. So you go off, you deal with the monsters in the desert, you come back to the character that kind of lives in that area. And she says something to the effect of, well, you know, I would love to plant some trees here, but the the amount of labor that it would take to actually get something to grow, even though the monsters are all gone, but to get something to grow here in the desert is going to take much too long to do. It's just not humanly possible. Now you have, at this point, you will have recruited a character in your party that's basically a robot. And as with many robots, as you would expect, they don't have the same kind of restrictions that humans would as far as putting in that additional labor. So if you leave that area without bringing your robot companion there or bringing him back, basically nothing happens. You you go throughout the rest of the game. You can go back into the present beyond that time. And the game is just kind of deserted. There's no trees. There's nothing because nothing happened. If you do go back, though, in the past with your robot character, he can actually uh, volunteer to work the fields over a period of time to get things to grow. And if you do that, you basically you leave him there. And then if you teleport into the future, you'll go back there and you'll see that instead of seeing a completely deserted kind of area with sand and all that kind of stuff, you'll see an entire forest. A whole forest will have been created and everybody in the area talks about the character and the contributions of your robot character as far as how that actually came to be and why that forest now exists. And if you go into the shrine that now exists there, you can then find the relic of your robot character, reignite uh, re, um, him, not reignite, uh, restart him, revive him, whatever the right word is for a robot companion that you're bringing back to life. Um, but basically you can bring him back to life and he can rejoin your party at that point and then you can continue on with your adventure. So that is just one example of a kind of a mid-game quest that utilized the time travel mechanic effectively. And the thing that's really cool about it is 
you're not just changing something in the world and then it pops forward and you see, okay, a tree wasn't there today. A tree is there tomorrow. All of the characters in the general area also change their dialogue. So if you talk to people before this event happens, they're going to talk about the fact that there's no forest here. There's no trees. It was just, it's always been a area of land that's been very difficult to plant on or to cultivate. And then when you go back after you make that change in the past, they all talk about how the trees are all lush and it's amazing that this was done. And it's just the, the attention to detail and the fact that not just the environment changes, but the characters and their overall thought processes and their dialogue changes as well based on the different impacts or the changes that you made in the past and how it impacts the future. I just think it was really well done and it made it feel like you had a true tangible effect on the world. And that's tough for a game to do. Not every game can pull that off, but Chrono Trigger did it. And it just made the whole experience feel amazing to play. Moving on to the playability and controls, everything about the controls here were perfect. And the navigation was pretty straightforward. I will say that this is an example of a simpler JRPG, a much more streamlined, at least it felt more streamlined to me from a JRPG perspective. Uh, combat difficulty does evolve. It starts out pretty tame, um, it does evolve over a period of time and introduces you to the different strategy and tactics as you play and how that kind of changes throughout the game. There are a few areas where the difficulty jumps up a bit, but those always coincide with major events or boss fights. I will say, though, that that the game does get pretty interesting and difficult as you go on. I'll say there's probably only or maybe only three ish fights where I died throughout the game. And granted, I've played the game before. I am a fairly, um, I have a fair amount of experience with JRPGs, games in general, but I have a fair amount of experience with JRPGs and when to heal and when to use items and when to push the attack and watching out for different elemental barriers or certain certain monsters that may heal if you use a certain type of spell on them or certain monsters that are weak to other things. So all of that stuff, all of that strategy, those strategic elements are built into the game. And if you're paying attention, you'll probably be okay. If you're not paying attention though, the fights are going to be really challenging. So definitely pay attention to how the fights are playing out. If you if you cast a certain technique and you see a bunch of green numbers pop up on that monster, you probably don't want to cast that technique again because you just healed them for a boatload of HP. So those kind of things are definitely at play. There are certain fights later on in the game in particular where there are some uh, techniques or spells that the enemies use that basically decimate you. <laughs> they either completely take most of your hit points away or they may drain you of all your magic points. And the one thing I will say is that for the most part, when that kind of event happens, there's usually a little bit of a lull afterwards that gives you an opportunity to recover if you're ready for it. And as with most JRPGs, there are various items that can affect your entire party. And there's certain techniques that depending on who you have in your party, you can do like a group heal kind of thing versus individual heals. So there are ways to mitigate some of those excessive damage or excessive magic point stealing kinds of actions that certain enemies will take you do have to pay attention though because 
like we said, when we talked about the fact that it's an active time battle system versus just a purely turn-based kind of combat system, um, it requires some attention and it definitely requires you to be engaged. The good thing is that the game itself is a very engaging experience. So it's probably not going to be too difficult for you to remain engaged because it is just that darn good. So overall, how did it feel to play? You could probably guess this is a timeless classic. I originally played this game 27 years ago when it first came out. I played the game again over the last couple weeks. I will probably play the game 27 years from now again. And I don't think it's going to age one bit. I don't think at any point it's going to age. It is just, it is just a really well done game. And I do just want to talk a little bit about Final Fantasy VI versus Chrono Trigger. Because when I was a kid, when I played Chrono Trigger, it was shortly after I had played Final Fantasy VI or Final Fantasy III for anybody who's in the United States or North America. So it was just a little bit after I played Final Fantasy VI, and I loved Final Fantasy VI. I thought that the sprawling world and the fact that there was that that mid-game calamity that basically changed the entire face of the world and all of the characters you had recruited, you have to re-recruit and find them in the world to continue to play the game. And basically, it was just like this amazing epic story, and I loved Final Fantasy VI so much. And then I went to play Chrono Trigger, And as a kid, I recognized that Chrono Trigger was great. But because Final Fantasy VI was just this gigantic, sprawling epic that was also similarly well done, I don't think I gave Chrono Trigger as much credit as I should have when I was younger. I don't think I fully realized how good it was. And I will say that I do need to replay Final Fantasy VI to really compare it to Chrono Trigger based on my current adult perspective. But as of today, and what I just experienced playing Chrono Trigger, I don't care how Final Fantasy VI compares to Chrono Trigger. It may be better, it may not be, it doesn't even matter. Chrono Trigger is a masterpiece in its own right. So, what is our verdict? Did Chrono Trigger make it into the pantheon of classic gaming? You know, sometimes there are games that actually make you rethink your ranking system. This game, Chrono Trigger, is undeniably a member of the classic gaming pantheon, but honestly, it feels like it transcends the pantheon. If there were something higher than the pantheon, this would be in it. I can't stress enough. You need to experience this game. You should probably experience it multiple times. It is just amazing. It is it is such a phenomenal experience. I cannot recommend the game enough. It's an undeniable classic. It remains an amazing experience today and is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the best games of all time. That was our episode on Chrono Trigger. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. 
If you'd like to reach out and let me know what you think, there are a couple of ways you can reach out to me. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. If you'd like to reach out, let me know what you thought of the episode, what you think about the game, or give suggestions for future games, or talk about past games that we've covered, or just honestly, just talk about classic games or gaming in general. Feel free to reach out. I am listening, and I would love to have the discussion. Before we call it for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is focused on Hotel Mario, which is not a Nintendo-developed Mario game. We'll get into all that when we talk about the game next week. Feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories about the experience. I definitely am interested in hearing what you all think. At the same time, I recognize that this podcast lives pretty much wherever podcasts live, and on those various engines, you could potentially leave a review. And if you feel so inclined, I would love to hear what you think about the overall quality of the podcast. So I'm definitely looking for feedback. If you feel like leaving a review, definitely, and please do so. I'm very interested in hearing what everybody feels about the podcast. It's not about bolstering star counts. It's not about getting a bunch of five-star reviews, though certainly if you feel that way and if you think it is five-star worthy, I would love to have it because that means we're doing something right. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I just want to know what we need to do to make the best possible podcast that we can. And the only way to do that is to get feedback from the community and to make sure that we're always focusing on the right stuff. We are still growing. We are still developing this community. It will continue to grow throughout the entire lifetime of this podcast. I'm very excited to see where it's going to go. I hope you all are too. We will be back in around a week with Hotel Mario. Until then, remember... Sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>